Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Autumn 2022 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. You can download the Freelance Forum podcast from Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and all good podcatcher apps, and on SoundCloud. This is episode number 45 on the topics of uh, covering conflict, uh, dealing with uh, propaganda in the fog of war and that, and so on. And I'm talking with Norma Costello. Hi, Jared. I'm just going to start, as I usually do, with a fairly broad question. Uh, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Kerry, um, just outside Tralee, and I have been working as a journalist kind of overseas mainly for about 10 years. Um, I started off kind of basically covering conflict really to be honest. Um, I did a short stint as like an editorial assistant in newsrooms in Dublin but um, yeah, I kind of, I found that by the time it kind of came around to my turn to have a go with journalism, let's say, or my generation, that there really weren't that many um, opportunities to work overseas and that newsrooms had already started to sort of constrict their budgets in that way. So I went off and freelanced and I suppose haven't stopped <laughs> taking small breaks from it um, over the years. But yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of it. It worked for me in terms of I could travel and cover the stories that I wanted to do. And it also allowed me a level of flexibility that I guess suited me more than perhaps like a staff job. From where you said your generation, I'm guessing you didn't go straight out of college into journalism, did you? I didn't. I actually did a master's degree in classics. And then I worked kind of like I did. I was teaching overseas for a year or two. And then I came back and um, and that was when I became a journalist. So it was kind of like my mid-twenties when I actually got into it. And it was like austerity raging through Ireland. You know, it, I think it was at that point, I think I joined the kind of journalism, um, let's say profession, which is kind of a funny word for it. But anyway, I joined it when it was on the decline fully. <laughs> and everyone told me that it really was becoming a, a kind of a... a you know, a kind of diminishing industry. But also on top of that, I wanted to do foreign coverage, which was also problematic, especially coming from a small country like Ireland that wouldn't have a big, like right now I live in Australia and obviously they have big newsrooms and a lot of um, international focus, given the fact that most people are born overseas and there's quite a large diaspora in the country. But in Ireland, I guess we don't really have that kind of... um, we, we kind of have a lock away on in our own country, I guess, that people are interested in. So, it was, yeah, it was challenging. <laughs> and how did you get, uh, was it that you started off wanting to travel and then that ended up bringing you, I assume you don't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to go look at a war. No. Um, I had, yeah, I had traveled a good bit and I had started to go to, I suppose, countries that people don't normally go to. So I had visited Russia. I had visited a lot of them. Um, you know, Eastern European countries and the Baltic country or Balkan countries and Baltic countries. And I think that was when I realized that there was a lot of things that I personally didn't know about the world. And then those areas are sort of, you know, there's a massive kind of, there's a massive kind of, I, I felt like even I, I worked in Riga and I noticed in, in Latvia, the kind of tensions between, let's say, the Russian speakers and 
the Latvian speakers were was kind of still there. And I realized, oh, there's a huge gap of things I don't know that's going on there. And then at that point, there was still kind of, yeah, there was still a lot of, um, I'm not going to say there was no conflict there, but there was a sort of unspoken on. Un- un- animosity between them and then obviously in the Balkans things are a bit more directly in front of you and I had been speaking to a lot of people who had been involved in militias and military in different parts of the Balkans and different sides of the conflict and I think I started to get interested in it that way and also like coming from classics you read a lot about conflict um albeit you know a millennia ago but you 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 study a lot of that, so I think pr- probably the combination of those two. What are the main issues that you come across in uh, in covering conflict? Um, what are the particular challenges? I imagine it's particularly grueling sort of journalism. Um, I, it's very in terms of freelancing. You know, a lot of conflict reporters are freelancers. Um, there's a lot that you know you'll see it, kind of you see the same names and same faces. Um, at different, at, like I'll give you an example. So there was a guy that I knew from Iraq that I bumped into in Ukraine, a guy I knew from Libya. I also met in Iraq and also in Ukraine. So you see the same faces. A lot of them are freelancers. And I think the issue really is that they, it is a, it's a hard graft in order to stay safe and make a living out of it because it's quite challenging work. Um, and it's not sort of like your typical freelancing because you also have like the massive added um, factor of trying to keep your own security, um, making sure that you're safe and making sure that the people that you work with are safe. Um, so you rely a lot on, you know, local fixers, local teams. Um, and in that that case, like that can kind of start to add up. So for freelancers, that's quite a challenge. Um, there's also like you know, working conflict zones full stop is challenging. Every aspect of it is, it's a different way of, it's a different way of, I suppose, using your smarts um, just to try and survive and to also, like, civilians are trying to survive and keep their families and friends safe. You're trying to survive and tell a story. So it's, it's yeah, it's a very different kind of way of approaching, um, approaching security. And it can be, yeah, it can be a little bit challenging in that regard. As a freelancer, did you have to be self, like pick things up yourself from security, or were you able to avail of training or work with institutions before you uh, first went on on work like this? Yeah, like I mean, there is obviously like there's courses that we do, and like there's a massive kind of network of support ready and available. From for, I find that older colleagues were really helpful, and um, so the more experienced people that I met in Libya actually were able to help me quite a lot when I was kind of on my own and um, like like so you kind of do learn a lot from people who are more experienced like on top of this the courses but I think I think what I found was like I was working in the southeast of Turkey and I was covering the war that between the PKK and the Turkish state and I found that that was one where I felt like that security, any training or any preparation that I had wasn't applicable to that situation because it was the state that were the main aggressors, to be honest. Um, they were the ones shelling the area I was in. Um, I would say like aggressors in the context of where I was because I was behind the walls in Sur. Um, and that was very, that was a very new environment because when you are faced with NATO weaponry, 
and you are on the other side of that, um, I feel like no matter how much training you have, that that stuff, yeah, can smash through quite a lot. And having, you know, knowing to lie down during shelling, it, it kind of when you're when the, when the scale of the attacks is that much, there's very little you can do. So it's kind of hard to, to talk about it sometimes because you're like, you could have a certain degree of security training, but you have to take kind of calculated risks. And a lot of it is kind of luck as well. So I think that it is knowing. I think that was when I learned like um, barriers and when to start to know your own limits of what you can and can't do that's safe. Um, and there's an awful lot of stories that don't involve that level of risk. I think that just comes from age and experience a little bit. What are the uh, frustrations of it? Uh, I imagine that it must be particularly maddening, for example, you come back uh, on a vacation or a holiday as you are now back in Ireland and seeing stuff that's being reported or filtering through propaganda channels, as it were, that you just know is, is inaccurate. Like the lies? Yeah, <laughs> they're... Um... Yeah, that's the hardest part, to be honest. That is definitely the hardest part is just outright lies. And people doing that for their to serve their own interests and, you know, a calculated group of people using a lot of, I'm going to say gullible people, naive people, people who have no idea of conflict and are just looking at this like a football game. Um, that That can be incredibly frustrating. And it can kind of... Like I was talking to a friend of mine about how it, it can kind of drive you a little bit mad because like you've seen something and you're trying to explain to people like I've given up now and trying to convince people that chemical attacks were carried out by the Assad regime against their, you know, against their own people. There's no point. It seems like that those arguments, the, the people who are devoted to these kind of conspiracy theories and who really push them, um, you will never, you know, you you if you're. Maybe if you're a 24 hour kind of keyboard warrior, a patient keyboard warrior who's probably, you know, like has the patience and the time to dedicate to that kind of disinformation, kind of, you know, like preventing that disinformation or like, you know, trying to get people to see a logical argument as opposed to, you know, somebody like Vanessa Beely talking about like the white helmets being jihadists. And you could spend your time trying to discuss these, you know, to try and make people understand like that the people that are propagating this are not people that are to be trusted in terms of sources but if you're actually actively working as a journalist you can't do that like journalists are not there to spend every day talking to every bot on twitter about you know various conspiracy theories so like i think the only thing you can do is try and keep your job going by reporting and bringing people back as much information as you can and just ignoring that it's very very hard though it's very hard in terms of the humanitarian side of it and like the fact that mass atrocities are somehow up for debate these days you know like the, you wouldn't i know what Srebrenica they tried to argue there was a lot of you know they, they tried to argue that you know it was like a false flag same things that they're doing in syria and trying and like, you know, kind of unsuccessfully doing in Ukraine to spread disinformation and discredit um, and kind of steal the legacy of genocide survivors, you know, to try and rob them of that and and diminish their experiences. Um, like it's it's just, you know what, it, it, even talking about it is actually very overwhelming because 
I find right now, like I'm talking to in a day that like, you know, dozens of rockets have gone through major urban centers in Ukraine at rush hour. And there's people in my timeline talking about, you know, how the Ukrainians are terrorists and like, and, and you know, like you can already start to see that the seeds are being planted to try and say that this, this is all justified because of a perceived, like they they were describing Ukraine as ISIS um, earlier. You know, I find it very hard to kind of try and articulate how damaging those conspiracy theories and propaganda, um, you know, propaganda channels actually are and the fact that we have politicians and senior politicians complicit in this and helping helping people that maybe they're not even familiar with with much more sinister and ulterior motives than they can probably imagine and um, to spread this disinformation and steal people of their right to be you know to be infuriate infuriated and upset and and devastated um to steal them of their victimhood in a way you know it's it's just a very cynical horrible machinery like i'm not sure that there really is a way to bring back conspiracy theorists as it were people who've gone that far are going to interpret i think everything almost within the framework of the conspiracy everything is a false actor or everything is fake news and so on i I think journalism's job is basically to be a firewall around those people and to basically put up what's actually happening as a way to stop that spreading further into the population. I think I think that's our, that's our job. I think rather than stop, rather than I don't think you're going to bring people back for once they've gone that far. But I think you can stop them finding new converts. I think it's it's still kind of a relatively new phenomenon, though, isn't it? Like, I mean, like bringing it back to Srebrenica and that, like that was in the days before the internet and before social media. So like things didn't catch on the way they can now. And I think at the beginning of this in Syria, journalists did, I can think of two really admirable journalists that no longer work in Syria or in the Middle East. Um, they're still foreign correspondents, but I remember they would spend an awful lot of time trying to talk to people on the internet who were coming up with these crazy theories and spreading them. Um, because it is new, you know, it's a new, it's a new process or it's a new, you know, it's a new type of way of spreading conspiracy theories. So I think people did try and engage with it at the beginning, but now it's pointless. Like, for example, even left-wing politicians now, I'm going to say, like, they have their supporters are now from the far right. And these would be kind of what you call far left politicians, but the people defending them on social media are far right. And part of that is exactly what you just said, that once you start looking at things in the framework of a conspiracy theory, those kind of older ways of explaining people's ideologies go out the window. And while the framework of their ideology might still be there, it's like peppered with conspiracy theories that you know cross over different ideologies. You can take a bit from the right and take a bit from the left to create your own crazy, crazy way of looking at the world, you know? I think it's always been with us. I think it's just gotten much faster. I mean, the protocols of Zion are over a century old, for example, where you still see people having to debunk those a century later. But just information spreads much faster now. Than, I, think. I mean, the revolution in the last 20 years has been sort of 
similar to what happened when the printing press came along first, just in terms of how much faster things happen. Yeah, I think that that's definitely like it's an accelerant for sure. Um, and like that, connecting people from very different walks of life very quickly um, with, you know, a uniform consent. Like it's just I think what's kind of scary about it is the fact that there's very little um, ramifications for people when it comes to, you know, spreading disinformation about people's lives and the fact that that stuff then can often be rewarded and amplified through political positions or through, you know, um, roles in the media that it can it can become, you know, it can it can become it can seem very apparent and it can seem like it's everywhere when in reality it's not. You know, most people, I think, know when something is completely crazy and doesn't make sense in the real world. But I think when you're looking at it through the lens of just the online world, it can seem like it's everywhere. Uh what are you working on at the moment? You're heading back to Ukraine, is that right? Yeah, so I'm going back. Um, I'm going back to Ukraine in ten days, um, and right now I'm just finishing off the end of what was like a, a rather laborious and slightly boring project that ended up becoming kind of, I suppose, quite topical and timely on um, like the Irish MEPs and their involvement in um, like just what we're talking about disinformation and. And looking, well, what I started to look at was not just Irish MEPs, but like um, MEPs across the board who were traveling as in delegations as collection observers. So essentially people that were not part of official election ob- observation delegations, but kind of clandestine ones that were vetoed, or vetted by the particular countries that invited them in. If you're invited to a government um, delegation to observe elections that are fraught already, and the government is paying for you to go, then that's problematic, you know. Um, I mean, there's a few metrics that they use to measure this stuff. And one is like, it's a short-term delegation that doesn't have like a continuous presence where they do, you know, um, observe or monitor elections, where it's just a few people parachuting in for a few days and out. And that's one of the, that's one of the metrics that they use to sort of measure how legit these delegations are. Um, so what I was looking at was the delegations themselves and who was on them. And I found people from the far right and people from the far left. Um, how these trips affected their social media. So were they more inclined to talk more about that country after being part of one of these delegations? And then what their votes look like within the European Parliament afterwards. And I mean, look, it's the stuff kind of... It speaks for itself in many ways without saying a word, if that makes any sense. Um, you would see that people, the the problem that we had in terms of this was that you had a few people who already had these ideas that were contrary to what we would call, I mean, European values. Um, so, for example, with uh, some of the far right politicians that were completely pro-Putin, I mean, they never hid that. They always were very open about being pro-Putin and pro-Russia. And so by getting elected, they never really hid that from their constituents. They were quite honest about it. So when they start going on these delegations, you know, it's no big shocker. It's no big, um, it's no big, you know, surprise. Now, interestingly, they weren't necessarily MEPs. A lot of them were just, you know, um, national politicians. It was kind of eye-opening for me to put it all together and to start looking at all the different the different political sects that were merging was actually in terms of their voting patterns. That was what surprised me. 
that it was really far right, very far right and very far left that had a tendency to vote the same way on controversial, let's say, human rights or security based votes. Um, I found that really surprising um, because I was kind of thinking, well, these two groups of people, surely they're in complete like binary opposition. But actually, when it comes to voting in ways that the rest of us might consider very bizarre, they somehow came to the same conclusions on certain resolutions, which was surprising. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking that like that this tendency for those two sections of society of, of political society as opposed to merge that that's actually going to increase i can't see that decreasing um but yeah so that's with you know we've we found that the fake election delegations was growing started it goes back a long way but i think initially what we discovered was that um russia had a delegation from a small pacific island country called nauru um that they used to legitimize their annexed regions in Georgia. Um, and they brought these delegations out to recognize the independence of these regions and to attend elections. Kind of the exact same thing that they're doing now in um, with the referendums in Eastern Ukraine. But we started to notice that this was becoming, you know, kind of a technology that they had created to then use to recognize other areas that they were you know, like that they had in their sites. So, yeah, I think they've created a sort of structure for this, which is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, you go, you annex an area. Now you have to legitimize it. So you bring over these delegations to observe some phony elections and they're going to push them out in the propaganda channels. Like we're going to see, you know, them on state TV in the country. It's going to be picked up by you know, other kind of friendly media and that is going to be pushed out that the narrative was that the elections were fair and everybody, the observers saw them, everything was okay. And then um, after that, they're going to recognise the independence of the regions as state officials. If they have that, you know, if they have that layer too, if they have, if they're, you know, able to do that for their countries. So like Nauru was tiny, they were able to do that. Yeah, so there's a, it was kind of an interesting project um, but it's obviously very concerning to see politicians use their influence in this way um, and use their influence to bolster autocratic regimes when they represent countries that have full, you know, vibrant democracies. There's definitely a lot to think about there. Just to move on from that topic um, into the the business of freelancing that you do, um, you said that you were living in Australia, and therefore selling to Australian media, and obviously you're back here at the moment, so you'll be uh, selling to Irish newspapers and so on. Do you uh, do you have other clients as well? Do you sell to like a, uh, UK or American outlets or even foreign language outlets in other countries as well? I'm just curious on how you make a living. At um, obviously, place. Australia was very different for me. I moved to Australia for personal reasons. Um, my partner's from there. But they, in terms of the Irish landscape, like I'd write for a lot of Sunday papers. Um, one thing I learned kind of early on was that like going from tabloid to broadsheet as a freelancer, um, there, you know, you can kind of, the content can be pretty similar. I think Ireland especially is quite lucky in that it doesn't have that really um, aggressive 
uh, you know, like different different slant on the news that other countries kind of broadsheets and tabloids do. Um, so I found that I actually developed a lot of times across both. And then for me, it was kind of like like everybody else. I'll have busy years and quiet years. And obviously with conflict, you kind of have to take your head out of it and take a break for a while. But in terms of the business model, yeah, like I think what I found, the main thing I found that kind of kept, always kept me afloat was to keep it diverse um, and not to be too not to be too picky about where I would put my work, you know, um, like not to say that it's just radio or just broadcast or just print to actually kind of, you know, to to not be that picky about what I what I was willing to do um, in terms of who, you know, who I'd give stuff to. Um, um, but yeah, I found it good. I think the Irish editors are pretty great. I think obviously the climate's pretty bad now. I wouldn't I wouldn't encourage anyone to go into freelancing and live in Ireland because when I was doing it, I was always living overseas. But I think I feel like in Ireland, I don't really know how people do it and stay afloat. I think the rates are low um, if you were just doing it here. And yeah, I think it'd be really hard to make a living as a freelance journalist in Ireland. In fact, I think it would be basically impossible. Um, given the cost of living crisis and how expensive everything is here. Like I noticed there's a dramatic difference even between Australia and Ireland about how expensive things are. So I think in that regard, I th- I think you can live overseas and freelance, but I wouldn't recommend anyone to try and pay Dublin rents on a freelancer salary, you know? I think one of the advantages that COVID gave us over the last two years is it made us realise that, well, first of all, you don't have to live in Dublin necessarily, depending on what it is you're covering. And second of all, you don't always have to restrict yourself to writing for Irish publications. Now, I'm not sure what the problem is that you're then competing against the rest of the world as well, but you don't have to stop with pitching just to publications in this country to make a living as a freelancer, hopefully, going forward in the future. Yeah, actually, I think it's a really good point because, like, there's a huge Irish diaspora, and one thing I always thought like we're a small country we punch a lot above our weight in terms of interest like international interest in us so there are a lot of international publications that are really interested in what happens here which is kind of funny considering we're such a small population we also i think we've got a grandstand view of what's happening with brexit at the moment as well (laughs) for better or worse if you were starting out again what would you do differently next time question i think actually just like reverting back to what you said there about the international publications to obviously think about that oh the other thing definitely i think is to be a little bit specific in what you're doing um i think a good way to freelance that i've seen people do is that they'll freelance like they'll have their niche they'll freelance in that so let's say minus conflict that's what they do but then within that niche they'll also have a certain specialist kind of knowledge about something so for example i know an awful lot about foreign fighters um and they'll have like then they'll go on and they'll perhaps publish a book really quickly on that or like you know they'll they'll start kind of developing that niche as a separate i suppose interest stream and income stream as well you know um and i think that that's something that i really didn't dedicate as much time to that i would have kind of wished now knowing what i know now that i could have gone back and kind of refined my interests a little bit more you know to become like 
more specialist uh, earlier on than how you know however long it took me to get to where I am now. Are you working on anything in particular, like uh, is, there, is there a book or any other project like that? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm working on a podcast series for a very long time. It's like it's when you're dealing with transnational stuff, it's an absolute pain because um, you know, like you're dealing with like a, a really small kind of thing that I think is kind of funny is that I'm I would had to go to I was supposed to go to America to interview people, but because I've been to Iran, Iraq, and Syria, I don't get the 90-day waiver. So, so I'm currently waiting for, like, I think it's going to take two months to get the interview for the visit to America to do one interview. Um, but that has to be done in person. There's no way around that. And so it slows everything down then because you're like, you can work on other aspects of it. But then, you know, if, if you're, if you, uh, because of the sensitive subject matter, people are, keep telling me that oh I'll only speak to you in person um, which is fine if they live down the road but if they live on the other side of the planet and I now live in Melbourne so it's pretty far away from everything um, it can slow things down dramatically so I think like I have a lot of friends going why isn't this done like why isn't it finished I'm like well like I'm on like I've been to like the axis of evil which means the Americans are slowing down that side of it when that gets done then I can move on to the next part of it and yeah, it's like, it's a pain. I definitely wouldn't recommend it. I would say kind of keep your stories local. Don't go too big with them. Uh, your podcast obviously isn't out yet, I assume. It'll take probably, go at the going rate, we should have it in about 10 years, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have a name yet that people can keep an eye out for? No, 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 no. Because if I tell you the name, I'm just giving away the whole thing. And to be honest, until half these interviews are finished, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm getting lectured a lot from from friends and colleagues and and family about it now at the minute, but it it does take time. And I think the other thing as well is when you're dealing with people who don't necessarily want to speak to you, um, it takes an awful lot of time to get people on side and turn their trust and for them to know that you're not going to do a hatchet job on them. You know, it 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 takes time to develop trust with people. All right, okay. Uh, thanks, Norma, for talking to me and. Um... To everyone listening, stay safe and take care. Uh, this has been the Freelance Forum podcast with Jared Cunningham. The forum is brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sectoral Learning and Development Programme. Music is from podsummit.com, released under a Creative Commons zero license into the public domain. I'm Jared Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe.